Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest's name is Kathleen Ferry. Kathleen owned a family business with her husband for 16 years prior to his tragic death on a work trip. And the next thing you know, Kathleen is sole owner of this manufacturing firm. And after a lot of due diligence and meeting with other advisors, she finds out that this business is essentially worth nothing. And she's got a job and a salary and employs a bunch of people, but she had to figure out what to do. And so Kathleen shares with us the journey that she did to take her company that was a couple million dollars in debt with a lot of working capital needs down to essentially a cash machine and had a lot of options 10 years later, even after the recession, about what she wanted to do and who she wanted to sell it to. And she didn't even need to sell it. So she explains her journey, some of the ins and outs of what she learned and There's great gold nuggets throughout the entire episode. It's a little bit longer than the rest. So without further ado, here's Kathleen Ferry. Good morning, Kathleen. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Life After Business podcast. I'm glad to be here today. I'm super excited to to chat with you today because um, you and I, when we sat at the panel together at the Exit Planning Institute Summit this uh, last few months, you kind of gave a little bit of a brief overview of your story to the audience and it really intrigued me for a lot of different reasons but um, to start it off why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of a background of how you started the company why you got into it and a little bit of the first part of the journey sure well I came from a family of entrepreneurs um, going back to both of my grandparents grandfathers But I personally never thought I would go down that path. I was more traditional. I had gotten a finance degree in banking and worked in a bank for a while and went back to school, got my MBA, uh, worked for Standard Oil of Ohio, and was going on a corporate career path until I fell in love with a guy that had a different idea. And he was a true entrepreneur. So my journey is a little bit different than a lot of other entrepreneurs because I kind of was dragged into it, feet, uh, not, not necessarily knowing what I was getting into. When we got married, my husband and I, um, we had a great plan, as most young people do, that I was going to continue to work in my corporate job. I had a good job um, and was going to support the family while he went after the dream of starting his own business. Um, that was a great plan until um, we actually started the process. My husband quit his job and decided that he wanted to get into manufacturing of fasteners. Our families were competitors, and, and that was the industry that we had both grown up in. And so he wanted to, to continue that legacy. A um, couple months into it, our first child was born prematurely, and I quit my job or I actually took a leave of absence thinking I was going to go back to it um, to deal with our with our son. In the meantime, the big corporation that I worked for was sold to a, a, to, oh, a no foreign entity, to a foreign entity 
and corporate moved across the pond over to England. <laughs> kind of throws so, your maternity leave through a little bit of a loop, huh? So I didn't really want to go across the pond. And as was a lot of small companies, my husband couldn't afford to hire anybody to help him. So I started doing the books in the back room and got pulled into that. So over the years, um, I never ended up going back to corporate America, but I started doing more and more within our company. And that was a great thing. I, I, we have five kids, and I had, I had a, a pretty good gig where I could work part-time um, and also raise our family, and my husband was involved in the business full-time. Fast forward about, 17, about 16 years, my husband went on a steel-buying trip to Mexico and suffered a heart attack um, there. And the next thing I knew, I was the uh, sole owner of a fastener company. Oh my gosh. So it was not a place I wanted to be, but as with a lot of things in life, all of a sudden it was what it was and I had to figure it out. And uh, so have you, have, you, have you guys done any kind of conversations? I mean, 16 years of him and you working in the business together, was there any conversations or any pre-planning prior to that forced uh, event? Um, no, except for the fact that one of the things I will say is that um, we did have um, Key Man Life Insurance, and I am the poster child for Key Man Life Insurance because it did give us a cushion during, during the transition, which was huge. Uh, the other thing that was, was, was very important is um, the education I had. I had my MBA from, uh, from Northwestern, and I had taken classes and, and not necessarily used the classes, but I had kept up um, as far as understanding business and being part of business. So, my husband and I were truly partners, even though he was the face of the company. Um, with a lot of family businesses, there's a lot of discussion around the dinner table. A lot of pillow talk, we, a lot of dinner conversations. It never stops, yeah, does it? <laughs> and I would be the one in the company that the employees would come to when they saw things going ways that they didn't think we should be going. And they would <clears throat> kind of tell on my husband if he was spending <laughs> too much money, if he was doing things that... They said, hey, you know what? So I was the buffer. I would be the person that, you know, if they didn't really want to go confront him about something or confront's probably a bad word, but didn't really want to broach it with them, they knew I would. So I, although I was in the back room and part time, I did have relationships with employees, which was huge. I did know um, the people on the floor. I did not know the sales side of it to the extent it would have been nice to have known it going into it. And and the other thing that had happened to us is that our plant manager had passed away from cancer a year before my husband did. And at the time we hadn't put a replacement in. So that so was still a void. Yeah. Really the two guys, if you think about any kind of company, we, our operations guy and our sales guys were gone and they were left with a financial person. So of the three, that's not the person I would want to be left with. But it, um, so I basically had to do a little boot camp to really bring myself up to speed about the other areas of the company. 
What size was the um, what was the kind of the growth projection from when you're you know those sixteen years where your husband was kind of the face of the company? And then what was sure. the infrastructure? What did it look like when you um, became the the sole owner? Right. So when we started out, we did we we did it the usual the old fashioned way. We borrowed thirty thousand dollars, bought a broken down machine, um, uh, leveraged everything we had and um, had very, very little in sales. We got into manufacturing of fasteners, which wasn't great margins. And not long after we got into the business, it got worse because of the way business changed. Uh, OEMs did not want to buy C type of items, which are what fasteners are individually they wanted to buy it from somebody who would who would basically warehouse it all so the business was changing just as we entered it and we didn't anticipate that so while we had growth and we did well relatively speaking it was not the kind of growth that we had anticipated we we had the consolidation basically of the industry and so much moved offshore so during that period we were trying to figure out ways to diversify, as a lot of companies do. We got into some buy-sell. We got into some packaging to try to evaluate it. And then in 2000, because we started the company in 86, 87, in 2000, the wonderful world of dot-com was raging. And we thought that that might be an opportunity to set up a dot-com site for the faster industry, kind of a way to go buy things. Mm-hmm. Right before my husband died, the year or two before, we were pouring a ton of money into it. It was actually sucking us a little bit dry from a cash flow standpoint. So at the time that he passed away, we were really at crossroads with that business. And as a lot of people learned, the amount of money to get something like that, especially in in, in that time was incredible. And so one of the things that I had to do is I had to shut it down. Uh, and I used his his passing as an excuse. But I tried to get us back to our core business. Because while it sounded great on paper to go after this market and be the, the way that people could buy and sell fasteners, the reality of it, it was just, it was just too... The, the amount of money to set it up and get going was just too too much for a size company that we were. What's well, an interesting? So we basically had to call, pull back. I basically had to pull back what we were doing and go back to the basics. So was that out of a you know some people you know I, I think you you tackled a challenging problem that a lot of people have and I don't know if it, is it because of your husband's death that allowed you to to actually make that decision because so many people have so many sunk costs and you know the time and emotional effort into building something out like that they'll, they'll just run it right into the ground because of stubbornness you know it, absolutely absolutely because I we had had that discussion probably for six months and I wanted to shut it down and I think I'm I'm more of a numbers person. He's he's the true entrepreneur, the true true sales guy, and um, I think he was emotionally attached to it. Where I had a little bit of distance, and it's never easy to shut down something that you were you know you you've committed to and you've you've allocated resources and your name's attached to it. But 
looking back at it, it was absolutely the right thing to do. If, if we hadn't shut it down, we would have gone out of business. So obviously you made a fantastic decision doing that. Where did you spend then, you know, what were the kind of the top five priorities or, you know, a few priorities as you shut that down and started moving forward? Where were the first things that you started to, to focus and um, put your attention? So my situation was that I took over a company that really was not worth anything. While we were pulling out a salary, and this this is true for a lot of companies, it was paying our salaries. We were able to provide you know income to people. We were making a little bit of money, but at the time that my husband passed away, it wasn't worth anything to anybody but us, basically. How so did you, how did you figure that out? A little bit of my background, my financial background, I, I knew enough to be dangerous. Um, from my education, but I also went out and talked to people. I um, used connections and went to breakfast and found some people who do deals and were nice enough. People tend to be pretty nice and will have a breakfast with you and kind of on a very high level talk through those kinds of conversations. And I, we were always afraid to have that conversation, I think my husband and I, about, you know, is it worth anything? But when it was just me, I had to, I had to figure it out. And so I was, when he passed away, we had about a million two in debt. Our cash flow was okay. We were, we were making a little bit of money. We were able to make enough money to be able to, you know, make our loan payments, pay ourselves a, a decent salary, you know, pay our bills and that. But it really, to go out in the open market and to say, I don't want to run this company wasn't an option for me. So that became very apparent. And my focus was, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. So what do I need to do to get this company in a position to be worth something to someone else? And I basically spent the next 11 years doing that. It took a lot longer than I thought it would but the result was was a good one. So for me personally, what I had to do is figure out what I personally could do. I had five kids at the time, and they were they were all of school age, six to fifteen. So I had to be realistic about what I could and couldn't do. So I I went out and I got the best sales guy I could find because everything starts with sales. And I knew I couldn't travel, and, and we, we sold nationally. So I got that person, and then six months later, we, we brought in the operations guy. And then we focused on creating value and focused on um, cash flow and had to make a lot of really hard decisions. So one of the things that I learned was that I love my husband very much, and he was a really good guy but he also didn't have necessarily the right people on the bus. Um, and took a year really assessing who was there. And it happens in a lot of businesses where when you're small, you reward loyalty. And as you grow, you need to reward competency. Interesting. I know that's a, that's a, that's a very, very fantastic point. I mean, um, we always used to say in our family business that it was the company overgrew the positions or, and then the people were not, you know, people work themselves into a job that they're not capable of very, you know, when you're in a growing company. 
It, and it's very difficult because especially in my situation, I was not an engineer. You know, I'm not a salesperson. I, I had to trust people. And as you grow, you have to trust people and their advice within a company. You can't do everything. And so what you really have to be able to do is really listen and figure out who's giving you the right answers and the right advice and who's just blowing smoke. And a lot of times what I found was, not a lot, but a lot there, of smoke. There, were several, <laughs> there were several cases where the loudest voice in the room wasn't always the best voice in the room. Oh, very good advice. Um, I got a question I want to go back to, because when you said that, you know, Obviously, replacing your husband and the plant manager seem like pretty kind of cut and dry um, places to focus. But once you had hired them, you said that you go back and you wanted to focus on value and cash flow. So can you explain uh, uh, to our listeners like, what was it in the value? Was it something from your MBA and your education where you knew where that value was? Um, or was it more out of just trying to survive and build value so you didn't have to, you know, the reason I'm asking is because we went through the same situation in our business when we were in the, in the challenging times, right? Where we got a lot of this, Hey, your company's not worth much. So let me know when you're, you're you figured it out. And we'd sit there after the advisor left and we go, well, we don't know what that means. <laughs> so how did, how did you figure out where to focus your time? Well, my background is financial, so I ended up really spending a lot of time looking at the numbers. And the biggest thing, the first thing that came to us is um, I had a guy that could grow our sales. So you, you can't create value strictly by cutting expenses. So you always have to go to grow sales. So so I had to get that person in first because to create value, you always have to be growing. So that's why the sales guy was first. But then the second thing that I looked at is my gut was telling me that we were overstaffed and that we weren't as efficient as we could be or should be. And I had, in my sales guy was a nice guy and my operations guy was a nice guy, but they weren't, quite frankly, tough enough. And, and it basically came back to me. And I had to go through, and I ended up a year later having to cut about 20% of our workforce. Wow. And... I knew in my gut I was right. I knew we could run this operation leaner. And what I ended up doing is I actually brought in an, an outside consultant for a very limited time to just have somebody come through and say, yes, you're right. Because nobody internally was giving me that feedback. But you look around and you see things and you go, this just this doesn't feel right. We should have better margins. We should be doing better. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started. So I, I brought in this my sales guy. I brought in the two guys that could run the day to day, but I knew we needed to get someplace. So that was the first thing I did. But then, what we also knew was that you can't cut your way to value. You can't cut your way to being worth something. You you need to right size your company. And that's what we needed to do. We needed to right size, get the right people on the bus. And then after we were good with that, then we needed to grow. And that became the second part of the journey. But the first part was to, I had, I had to hire a couple people, but then I also had to let go people, right size for where we were. And then we had to come up with a strategy for growth. Yep. Um, so 
you had mentioned also the cash lobby. So coming from the numbers side, I think you know you had mentioned that your husband was the the true entrepreneur, the salesperson. Which I think generally that's the case when a lot of these business owners or our listeners or the people we uh, interact with are the salespeople, and then finding the yin to the yang. And you were the other side to your husband. Um, so the the financials are the is the scorecard, right? I mean, that's how we keep track of our success and can measure what we're doing. Um, and you said specifically focusing on cash flow. There was one thing that you had mentioned in the the panel that just blew my mind, and it, it, I think it's a subset of the cash flow uh, conversation, which is what you did to your working capital. So can you give our listeners like what? it is that you looked at in cash flow and how you saw that it was a problem and then what you did to right size it right so we were in we were a manufacturing company so depending on what kind of business that you have where your cash flow but for us inventory was huge so inventory was a big part of what we had to do and for us, and this is getting a little specific and in the weeds, but lot size. So, for instance, we ran fasteners, and, and we would sell them to big, big, big players out there. So we we would run 200,000 fasteners in a lot. And our lot sizes were really big. And our guys love to run big lot sizes because, obviously, there's less, you know, um, changeover, mm-hmm. all the of things and so what happens in companies is that people just say well this is the way it is and this goes back to listening who's telling you what and kind of the common thought in our in our business in our company was that we needed to run certain sizes of lots and nobody really challenged that thought process well what if we ran smaller lot sizes Granted, your, your changeover is going to be a little bit higher and this and that, but what will happen to the carrying costs and how much inventory are you actually going to have and how much steel do you have to buy? All those things that go into it. And so really trying to drive those kinds of thoughts that, you know, there's, there's things that are just done in companies because it's always been done that way. And one person 10 years ago said, this is what we need to do. And then it's accepted as, as fact. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> so, so one of the things that we, we started to do, and this is just one instance, was looking at our lot sizes and saying, you know what? I don't know if we need to make that as our minimum lot size. Now, granted, for some things, we, we would run that many at a time. But does everything have to be run at that size? So from a cash flow, we cut our, our minimum lot size down in half. We said, we're going to try this for a while and see what happens. Well... It, it helped our cash flow tremendously because we were, first of all, we were more responsive to customers because we could get product, we could get, you know, runs on quicker. We had less inventory on hand. I mean, you know, we, we, if you run, run these bigger lots, you may have that inventory on your floor for four months. And instead, maybe we'll carry two months of it on the floor. And so it was things like that. Um, that's just one instance of what we did. We looked at tool for us. Tooling was a big deal. Well, wow. So I want to, uh, I want to jump back to that for a quick second. So with that 200,000 uh, fasteners, I mean, were you going to your bank and was that what were you floating that on your own line? So you were carrying so we had a line of credit, right? We had a line of credit and, um, you know, one of my goals was we had, we had a fair amount of debt 
and um, outstanding. And I that scared me. <laughs> I'm not I'm, <laughs> being, uh, you know, the yin and the yang. My husband was okay with that. I wasn't. And so that was one <laughs> of the things that I wanted to do. And also one of the things that we ran into was obsolescence. So you might run something and all of a sudden, you know, and you might have four months of or six months of a product on your floor waiting for a customer. And all of a sudden somebody makes an engineering change. Yep. So that was part of it. The other thing was just the flow through the plant. We 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 didn't just have one process. We had numerous processes. We made we would blank things. They would go out. We would heat treat. They'd come back, be tapped. Sometimes they'd be deflected. All these different things that go within our process. They'd go out for plating. And what what did that timeline look like from the time we started the process to the time we ended? And the other thing we worked really hard on was shrinking that time and how long product sat and whip. So our work in process. So that was another real big opportunity. We really said we need to really reduce our whip in that. And all of that started to really help things. Things like just having a lot of material on the floor, you need additional material handlers to be moving things. If you look at the the guy's productivity, if they're always having to move product because they have to get to another bin or something like that, it all gets on top of each other. So one of the things we did, I spent a lot of time trying to just, I would stand out on the floor and just watch. Oh, fun. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I don't know if the guys liked it so much, but <laughs> I would literally stand there and try to understand what was going on. And I would talk to the operators, the guys on the floor and say, what's going on here? What's happening here? When you're in a business, so many times you get pulled into just trying to solve the problem of the day that you don't step back and actually watch how your business runs. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I could do and I could be very honest with the guys. I could go on the floor and say, I don't really understand this. Can you explain this to me? Or I need to watch how this happens. Because I didn't have all the answers and I didn't pretend to have all the answers. So I could do a lot of, well, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? And to have that constant, what what if we tried something different? What if we do this? And not everything makes it better or worked, but it's always looking with fresh eyes and trying to think of how to do something better. I had this uh, one guy on our uh, on our podcast where he goes, I wasn't good at anything, so I just asked why all the time. <laughs> it, it's so true. It, if you can lose the ego, right? <laughs> if you can lose the ego and not have to have all the answers, it's amazing how much you can learn. Yeah, it's so. You're 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 the story you've been kind of unfolding here sounds almost identical to the book called The Goal. You're familiar with that book. <laughs> I read the goal. I read the goal. Did you just like carry that book around and walk around on the plant floor? <laughs> so it's really funny. My husband made me read it <laughs> like very early on in the, um, in, in our companies. He, he loved that book. Yes. It's an old classic. Oh, it's awesome. I listened to it on audible a ways back and the, the stories that they talk about where they, everybody's sitting in a room and smoking cigarettes in the office. You're like, yep, this is definitely a few decades old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, it was, I think I read it in the 80s. Or the 90s. Yeah. So 
uh, fast forwarding to like what you actually accomplished. So one of the things, so, you know, I, um, in my firm, we follow the value builder system. One of the tools is valuation teeter totter and a focus on working capital, right? And the, and how, how much working capital it takes to run your business will devalue your business. So it sounds like you had a very good, you know, laser focus in on that. So can you, uh, relate to us what you did from like the day one of working capital and debt to what you did at the time of the exit? Well, there's a little there's a little transition there in the middle too that um, just to kind of put it in. So mm-hmm. one of the things I was working towards that, but as I I've said, we weren't in the best industry, and our particular company was in in nuts, which is more of a commodity than even other fasteners. Because so we really needed to diversify, and you need to grow, and we still had debt, and we still weren't comfortable with where we were. So one of the things that we did is we got angel investors. So I was okay with giving up a minority interest in the company to bring in some investors to help me get over the hump to be able to diversify. And we went out and bought some high-speed bolt makers, which allowed us to to go with a customer, a new customer, new products, um, opportunities that we wouldn't have had and that helped my cash flow also because I I, I diversified the risk from equity and, and bank debt. So that, mm-hmm. that that was a big deal for us and it also happened in 2007 so that when we went into 2009 we weren't as leveraged as a lot of other people which helped us get through that financial crisis. But the ability to bring in some additional working capital in that way to get us up and running on that so that by the time the financial crisis was over, we came out of that very quickly and then had our three best years, 10, 11, 12. Wow. And we had positioned ourselves with the acquisition of some machinery that was newer, better, more efficient. We were able to run things better as a result. So sometimes, and that was a very hard decision to give up. I still had control, but to be to go out and be vulnerable, and, and it also created a board. When when those investors came in, um, we we established a formalized board, which was very good for me because it, it formalized the. I had to report to somebody besides myself. Mm-hmm. These were businessmen, um, older businessmen who gave me great advice. Uh, I had a sounding board available, and and that helped. So from a standpoint of the, the working capital, we were working towards these efficiencies, but we also knew that we needed to get some better margin and some other opportunities to continue to grow. So it's not always a straight line. Mm-hmm. In the development, and, and you have to be open to things that you don't necessarily see coming. This, so, this what did you learn? Sorry to interrupt, but I want to go back. So, you know, you went from when you got the business from your from your husband to, and it, you know, like you said, talking to these deal uh, professionals that it was worth nothing to going and getting money. So, obviously, these angel investors saw value in your company. So, what did you what did you learn th- through that transition or that? That uh, that new evolution that you 
you know, how did, how did that all come together? And I don't know if, if it'll make so sense. So one of the things that was really good about that process, and it helped me because at the end I sold to private equity, is that it helped us. A lot of entrepreneurs know things in their heads, but they don't put it down on paper. And so we, through the process, before we got these angel investors, we had started really documenting and really putting together, um, you know, looking, doing SWOT analysis. And people know the SWOT analysis in their head, but there's something that happens when you put it on paper. Mm-hmm. Something that happens when you have to explain it to somebody outside of your internal organization. There's something that happens that brings a discipline and really makes you think through what you're doing and what your business looks like. So for me, having to put that stuff down on paper and actually put together a presentation was not a waste of time. It was actually a very good thing because it helped me focus on where we could do things. And going into the, for instance, the financial crisis of nine, 2009, we knew we were losing $100,000 a month at one point. Wow. And yeah, a couple months there. And so I needed to go to my board and say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And so we had the plan. We had exactly what we were going to do to survive that. And we had it month by month, step by step. And we did it. And because we had that formalized plan, they didn't beat us up too badly because in manufacturing was down for was down really steeply but then it came back really fast because nobody had inventory on hand so we were down for a couple of months but when we came back we came back so strong because their people didn't have inventory on their on their floors and we were in position with our plan we had a written plan about how we were going to do things and so we had the machinery that we had bought prior we had trained people we had done cross training during the downtime. So we were in a position to take advantage of the economy when it came back. That's fantastic. I mean, your, your board must have looked at you like you were amazing because a lot of other, I'm assuming they were talking to their other investor friends where they were not having as good of a situation. <laughs> well, there was, there was, you know, there's always going to be rough times. And, and if you're in business long enough and we were, you know, we had the company for, um, you know, 27 years, there's always going to be dips and it's how you deal with those dips. Mm-hmm. But even when we were in there talking about what we're, what, you know, to your point about cash flow, even during those months when we were really doing badly, we were still generating positive cash flow. We were able to be able to do some things, um, really got our inventories lean, really looked and made sure we were on top of our receivables. We really controlled things. And so even during the bad times, we were still chipping away at improving our, you know, our cash flow and our debt service and all of that. So the, uh, well, you know, when you talk about you were using your line, going back to the 200,000 uh, uh, fasteners, I mean, you were using your line, you had debt with the bank. So you've, you, you've got that little bit of a interesting investor situation in the middle of that. But what you would, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers here, but it was like a couple million in a working line for your, your working capital to like $10,000 that it took you to run your entire plant. So we did. By the time where we were at when we, at the end of 2012, we had gotten to a position where we had a line of credit still, you know, still available to us. And we would use it some, but we could pay it off. So we could get it down to zero. 
where we were at at that point was we were finally getting to be worth something. And actually two different private equity groups approached us. But simultaneously with that, we were also developing our 10-year plan because there's no guarantees that these deals are going to happen and you can't just stop making plans. So what I had actually done is I had actually simultaneously to be looking for somebody to sell to, I was also doing our next phase with the company. We had actually gone out and gotten approval for a loan to be able to add on to our building. We had, we had a 50,000 square foot building. We were leasing space, additional 25,000 in another space, another area. We had gone to the bank and gotten approval for loans that would be able to fund the addition to the building and also addition to buy more equipment to fill out the lines that we had already. We were had negotiated a line of credit if we did go this way because we would need the additional working capital to support that. So simultaneous to having initial discussions with private equity, we were also doing our growth plan. And I think that's really important to not just focus on one or the other. I think where we were at the end of the business is we had options and we had choices. And we were be able to keep going even if the private equity deal hadn't happened. And I think that's really important. I don't think you one day just say, okay, I'm done and I'm going to sell because I think there's statistics out there that 90% of deals don't actually come to fruition. I'm I'm working with a group right now, and they say that they look at 100 companies and only one ends up being a deal. That's so crazy. It's (laughs) so one of the things that has to happen is you until the ink is dry, you need to continue to run your company and you need to continue to grow your company. And you need to continue to have a plan. And I think the fact that we had this plan and we could show the future buyers what our plan was, that they could take that plan and see the growth because they're not, a future buyer is not buying you just to stay constant. They want to grow your business. Yep. If you already have a model and you already have the steps that you will take to do that, that's very attractive. You know, whether it's you personally, whether it would have been me doing it or somebody else doing it, there was a plan. So um, what you did with the working capital, I'm just going back to that, is so ridiculous <laughs> because, you know, coming from our, our business, I mean, we had so much inventory parts. And I mean, it, I juggled cash flow with my dad for six, seven years straight. I mean, and I had half my staff working on the amount of inefficiencies with not having the correct structure like that. I mean, so when you've got some, when you've got a business and do you mind me asking top line revenue? I don't know if you can disclose that or not. Uh, yeah, we were about, we got up about 15 million. So you're a $15 million manufacturing plant that is kicking out cash, not using your own capital. That's <laughs> just like, it's a money-making machine when you look at it from an investor standpoint. So a couple questions I want to ask about that is, did the you know you said that the private equity firms reached out to you? Is that via connections from your board, or like how did you get exposed? Because I'm assuming with that kind of efficiencies, people start talking, or is it your investors, or how did that all happen? 
So really what it is, is, is there's two different, though there's lots of different ways. So in, in the private equity group world, you can be a platform company or you can be an add-on. We were of a size that we would be an add-on. And well, actually with one private equity group, we would have been the platform, but we were a little bit small. And what they wanted me to do is stay on. And basically it would just been another cash infusion versus actually getting getting us out. But what happens in in industries is is the particular company I ended up selling to had created a platform of fastener companies. Hmm. And so through associations that we were part of um, in the industry, this was known. And so we had negotiated a very lucrative contract with one of the biggest distributors in the industry. And they were aware of that, that we were basically the way that they would be able to get into this particular customer. And I think actually at the end of the day, that's really what drove it. Once they got into it, they didn't know necessarily about our cash flow and stuff like that, but they knew who our customer that we had this relationship with a customer and they had other plants that if they could get in with this customer and it was a pretty big um, program for us. And we, if we had continued on, we would have bought additional equipment to service this customer. This particular private equity group had that equipment already at other plants. Oh, got it. So from a standpoint of, and these are things that we talk about is when people are looking at you, they look at a lot of different things, but who are your customers is huge. And the fact that our sales guys had gotten in there and spent a year or two trying to negotiate and really develop this relationship was worth a lot. And that I love it. And then uh, to go back again to your, when you say options equals choices and control, you know, I think that's important for, all of us entrepreneurs, because that's kind of why you go into, I mean, you, you got into business a little bit differently, but I think even you had, I know knowing you a little bit, control is what you want as a business owner, right? And that's why you don't like debt and having that control when you can walk into these meetings with the private equity groups or your potential buyers, knowing that you don't have to bend over and take what they, uh, take what they give you is, there's a little bit of swag to it, isn't it? Like you got just this. Absolutely. It's it. What, it, what, where we were at the end with the deal. And, and it's, it's quite the process is that we would be okay if they walked away. And that changes the complexion of what you don't want to be at that fire sale. And, um, and it was at the end of the day, my choice to leave. And there's something about having that ability to make that decision, which is great, versus feeling that, boy, I got a rough deal, I got a bad deal, I got this and that. What I got was a fair deal, and I, I can honestly say I have no regrets. I think it was, you know, I being in manufacturing and being in the kind of business I was, we were never going to have the margins of some medical device that has patents or something like that. And you have to be very realistic about what you have and what your business is. And I think that's really important that your expectations match the reality of the situation. So 
I think I had spent a number of years really getting my head around what the company was worth and what I thought was fair on both sides. And so when the deal came, I had realistic expectations. They were good. It was a good deal for us. But I think sometimes business owners don't have a realistic expectation of what First of all, their business is worth, and then what life looks like after their business isn't there anymore, too. I love it. What suggestions do you have about that life after business? You know, hence the name of the podcast, right? Which is right. <laughs> what's next, right? So, how did so, you deal with that, and like, what was some yeah. of the? So I was I was a little naive on one part of it. I thought that I would be the exception and stay on after we sold and work with the people, <laughs> and um, I did stay for a while. And, um, it wasn't exactly what I thought. Was it tough? It was tough. And I had, you know, the, a contract, a short contract to stay on. And I think one of the things I had to wrap my head around was that I had sold it and it wasn't my business anymore. And I didn't necessarily like who I was becoming working in that environment. And so I said, okay, we're done. And it was, a, it was a good thing because I left at the right time. The private equity people were very fair with us. We had no issues after the sale. We got all the money. You know, I, I think everything, everything worked out fine. But it was time for me to leave. So I, I left. I took a year off. I knocked out a wall. I redid my kitchen. I tried to play golf, but I didn't get any better. <laughs> And so about a year, and that was, I needed that. It, it had been a rough, it had been a rough number of years there. You only knocked down one wall, huh? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's a whole nother story about why I was able to do that because we ended up with more cash at the end. That, that was a, that's a, another little thing that could be another talk is how we ended up with more on, on a cash basis at the end. But so we ended up with a little more money than we thought we were. And so I, I decided to, to redo my kitchen. I love it. <laughs> but, but I realized I was 54 when we sold. By the time everything was done, I was 56 and I was bored. And this happens, I think, to a lot of people and everybody's different. And so then I basically spent a year trying to figure out what to do next. And I read books, I talked to people, again, went out, and about a year ago, I decided to go into some CFO consulting. And I am now working with small companies, uh, private companies, uh, part-time, because I still want to be able to do what I want to do. And it's perfect for me. But it took a little bit of time to figure that out. And some people can walk away and never work again. Um, Other people need to be go right in and buy another company and want to be that entrepreneur, I would say I'm somewhere in between. I want to work some. I want to have money that I can, I have my retirement in the bank, but I like to spend money. So I want to keep a cash flow that allows me to do things that probably aren't necessary. (laughs) But fun. (laughs) I can do it without feeling guilty. Right. And not dip into the retirement. So for me, doing part-time consulting has been is working out very well. But that's a really individual uh, thing, and really people need to look at that before they walk away. It's a lot and of internal, internal reflecting, isn't it? 
It really is. And I, it took me about a year to really figure out what's a good fit. And I don't necessarily think that when you leave the company or sell the company, you have to have all the answers. But I do think that you do need to give yourself and, and explore options afterwards and and really not be afraid to try something new. And a lot of times I think people have had success in one venue or one thing, and especially somebody like me, we were doing one thing for 27 years. It's scary to go out and try something completely new and put yourself out on the line because you've had success at a certain level. Mm-hmm. And so, so if there's, and, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's just something that that you have to understand what you, you what know, you want, with, what you want from life in your business, right? I mean, it, it's a, it's a, that's you know, kind of the whole point of the the podcast too. I think because so many people realize it after the fact, right? like, oh my gosh, now when I show up to parties to places, I have to tell people I'm I'm what I'm not a business owner anymore. I am uh, what, <laughs> and this well, is what know, I like to do. Something to that because before you were the president or the owner or the CEO, whatever the title you are, of something, and now you're just uh, another rich guy or you know rich guy or whatever. But you but there's so much identity tied into that that you need to make sure that you're developing things and. Um, you also, if you're used to going into work every day, that structure in your life, you need to replace it with something else. Got it. So if there's one thing that we haven't touched on or you want to leave our listeners with, um, what would it be? I um, would really encourage business owners to just talk to other people. It can be very isolating to be a business owner because everything stops with you. And I found that by talking to other owners, talking to different people around, you know, whether it be your accountant, your lawyer, consultants and that, it really helped broaden me and see things a little bit differently. So that would be the biggest thing that I would encourage you to do is talk to other people and see what other people are doing, what's going on out there outside of your day-to-day business. Perfect. If there's any way that our listeners can get in touch with you, what would it be? It would be at k.ferry at focuscfo.com. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan.